We turn to the end of chapter 13 of Luke's Gospel this morning. Luke 13, 31 through 35. Luke 13, 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Father, I ask that your spirit would move not only in our minds to help us understand this text, but also in our hearts. Father, that you would use this to strengthen, to conform us more into the image of Christ for those of us who are born again and trusting And Father, that uh, it might be your gracious will that you might save anyone here who does not yet know of the incredible hope there is in Christ. Lord, we ask this of you in Christ's name. Amen. If I was going to ask the question, Uh, to all of you, what is your attitude towards God? What is your attitude towards Christ? Or what is your attitude towards the Word of God? I trust that everyone knows what you're supposed to say. (laughs) You're supposed to say, my attitude's good towards God. I'm I want Jesus. I want the Word of God. The text before us is a judgment spoken upon the Jewish leaders who did not want Christ. They did not want God. They did not want God's words. And As a preacher, when I get to a text like this, I think, what does this have to do with believers? So if they're already saved, if they have the Spirit of God inside them, how can they learn from judgments spoken to false teachers? The answer is, as saved Christians, those who do know Christ, still are in a battle with their flesh, their fallen nature. They've 
not yet put to death the deeds of the flesh perfectly. So, the same flesh that causes the Pharisees to reject God's word can cause us, if we're willing to take an honest look into our life, to run from the word of God, to run from Christ, and to run from God. We as Christians can all struggle with this. Last week, we looked at Jesus' plea to strive to enter through the narrow gate. And Jesus took us forward into the future and let us see what it's going to be like on Judgment Day, that the majority of the people who thought they knew Him were actually going to stand outside the door when the master of the house shuts the door and try to get in, but will be unable. He lets us see what it's going to be like. People who were religious, but didn't know Him personally. He didn't know where they came from. And then He takes us into the future to show us what hell will be like. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for those who thought they were getting in and they realize they are not. Those, and specifically, he's speaking to Jews in that context where he says, when you see Abraham and the prophets all dining in the kingdom of God and you yourself are left outside and people are coming from east and west and north and south, all coming to this banquet, but you yourself cast out. And that text we talked about Just like in World War II, when the United States, five days before they dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they dropped a million leaflets over across the tops of these cities that warned them that destruction was coming. That's what this text was like. And now, as we come to verse 31, we see the sad reality of Israel and especially Israel's leaders. You know, you might think that these five verses will be simple. I kind of thought, well, this might not be that tough a text. Maybe one out of five sermons I preach, you, you, you run into a real difficult uh, interpretation issue that really takes more time. In these few verses, there is like three of those. I'm just going to tell them to you on the front end. So as we work through, you can lean in and be excited to work through these questions. The first question was this, why are the Pharisees in verse 31 telling Jesus to get out of here for Herod wants to kill him when we've already seen that the Pharisees have been plotting Jesus' death. Why would some Pharisees come and say, get out of here, Herod wants to kill you? That was the first question. The second question is, 
in verse 34, when Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And my question is this, because I know there's those who say, see, man's will overrides Christ's will. He wanted to gather, but they were unwilling and man's will it seems at first glance to trump the sovereign will of Christ. And yet I know from the rest of the scripture that is not true. So what does this text mean? The third question is in verse 35 where he says, uh, Behold, your house is forsaken. That is the pronouncement of judgment. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does until refer to? What time is this when they will say, blessed be the name of the Lord? So, since you're all at the edge of your seats and you can't wait to dive into this text, Let's dive in and see what the Lord will teach us. First, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Imagine, imagine someone coming to you saying, there is a plot for your murder. Get out of here. How would you feel? How would you respond? This is a real threat. And yet, he said to them, go tell that fox. <laughs> to which I say, yeah, that's my Lord. You threaten me, I might be afraid. You threaten Christ? You threaten the Lord. He says, you go tell that fox. What does fox mean? It actually points to what you might think it means. It refers to a sly, devious person. To use it in referral to a person. And it was also used in the Old Testament to describe uh, a destructive little varmint that destroys vineyards. I'll give you a couple examples. Ezekiel 13.4, we read, Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. So the prophets of Israel were like jackals or like little dogs that rather than protecting the people and in taking care of them, destroy them. In Lamentations 5.16, we read, The crown has fallen from your head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, and jackals prowl over it. 
This was the state of Israel throughout uh, its history. People far from God in idolatry and their leaders only making it worse. In the Song of Solomon, the book most people are afraid to open because it's speaking of intimacy a lot of the times in very uh, uh, poetic language. In chapter 2, verse 15, the, the young maiden says, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. And what she's saying is, be pure until the wedding day. Don't arouse or awaken love until it pleases. Little foxes can get into your dating relationship and sin can come in and begin to ruin this beautiful vineyard that at the end of the Song of Solomon is opened up. Where of a the husband is called to enter into the vineyard. You should read it. It's in, in the scripture. It's God's word to us. But here we get the idea of this word fox. And then he says, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus specifically says, this warning doesn't cause me to do one thing differently. My course is set. I'm going to continue on with the ministry the Father has sent me to do, and I'll complete it on the third day. Commentators wonder what the third day is. It definitely points to the death and resurrection, culminating in the resurrection he raises on the third day. If you would read liberal theologians or you even watch like the History Channel and they're talking about Jesus' life, a lot of times they'll speak as though Jesus was this good guy who had good intentions but kind of got overboard with what he was doing. And he pushed people too far and he pushed the Pharisees to the limits and he ended up getting himself killed. As though, if he would have been wiser, he could have been a more effective leader. But we've already seen in Luke, back in, back in chapter 21, or Luke 9, verse 21, we see he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Peter had just said, you are the Christ. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So already we see that Christ is not a victim that has unknowingly walking towards his death. 
but rather he was sent into this world by his father to accomplish what God has sent for him to do. And then in verse 44 of Luke 9, he says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of man. He's saying, let it sink in. This is the plan. This is the way it's going to be. Remember, Peter tried to stop him and say, no, no, no. And he said, Satan, get behind me. You have the things of man. You have a mind of the world, not a spiritual perspective. And then in verses 51 of Luke 9, we read this. Here's the turning point in the gospel. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This was not a foolish move. This was an intentional move. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. He's on, he's, he's on the way. A threat comes. Be careful. Herod wants to kill you. The puppet king over Israel that the Romans had put in place, Herod, But Jesus knew what he was doing. He was not afraid. Now, if, we, if our Savior was afraid, then we ought to be afraid. You know, sometimes my girls will get scared, and I'll tell them to look at me. If Dad looks afraid, you be afraid. If I'm not afraid, don't be afraid. If our Lord was full of fear and feared man, then we would need to be full of fear and fear man. But we're told just the opposite. He knew what he was doing. I love this. In John 19.9, you don't need to turn there. He's standing before Pilate, and Pilate says, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority uh, to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate's saying, I don't think you know who I am. When I speak to you, Jesus, you better speak up. And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Okay, this guy scares me a little, Pilate says, but Jesus did not cower to anybody. And quickly, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 4, we see the what seems like, uh, well, it is a mystery, God's sovereign over everything, even sin, although he doesn't cause sin, it doesn't flow out of him the same way goodness flows out of him, yet in his divine sovereign plan, he ordains sin to work 
for good. And we see this so clearly in Acts 4. This is to show that things weren't out of control. Uh, Acts 4, verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, that, mean, that means you're in control of all things, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He reigns, he rules over them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there is gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So they're all there gathered to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they're really there doing the evil plotting and killing of Jesus. And they're going to be held accountable for it. This is why I say it seems like a mystery for human minds. They will be accountable. And yet, all the while, God's perfect plan was taking place. Jesus is fearlessly in perfect control. See, when I asked you at the beginning, what's your attitude towards Jesus? Let me put it this way. How much of your life do you put in his control? And how much of it do you, you think you got to grab onto in your own strength and in your own power, in your own wisdom? How much of your life is lived in fear rather than in confidence going to God's word for direction? You see, if we're honest, it's easy to miss the glory of Christ and start seeing the glory of our own wisdom in control. The second <clears throat> point, follow Jesus for he is the word of God. Look at what Jesus says. He, he says in this statement in verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus, God has always sent his word to his people. But Jerusalem, the Israelites, the leaders of Israel have always been in rebellion to God's word. Even though God promised good things for them, if they would repent and turn and welcome his word, but rather... They made a history of killing the prophets. The word of God would come and they would say, no, 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 no. I don't want it. Get it out of my life. This gets in on my control. Get away. I don't want to hear what you have to say. In 2 Kings verse 21, we could go so many places we see all the innocent blood spilled by Manasseh 
It reads in verse 16, 2 Kings 21, 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what is evil in the sight of the Lord. This was commonplace. History tells us that one of the ones that Manasseh slayed would have been Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. In Hebrews 11, we're told that some were sawn in two. And uh, this isn't in Scripture, but this is history says this, that Isaiah was put into a hollow log. And as he was put into a hollow log, they sawed him in two. This has been the history of what Israel has done with those who came to deliver the word of God. What was Jesus just saying in the previous passage? He's saying run to the narrow door. Repent. Run to me. They're all, the majority of them are rejecting him. And, he, and he's crying out. He's saying it's not going to go good for you. Run to me. Run to me. He is the prophet. He is the last one to speak. And then we have Jehoiakim, who was king of Israel in Jeremiah 26.20, where we read how he slayed Uriah the prophet. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord Uriah, He prophesied against the city and against this land in words like that of Jeremiah. So he comes and he speaks of their sin. In verse 21 of chapter 26, he says, When King Jehoiakim, with all of his warriors and all of his officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. Then in verse 23, they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him before the king who struck him down with the sword and dumped his body in the burial place of the common people. This is what Israel did to those who were sent to bring God's word to them. The call to repent to them. In Matthew 23, 29, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. So they said, our fathers were bad guys. They killed the prophets. So we're going to go to their tombs and we're going to put flowers on them and we're going to make them look good because we're not bad like our fathers were bad. Jesus says, that's what you scribes and Pharisees do. And then he says to them, thus you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the full measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape the sentence of hell? He says, go for it. The greatest prophet is here. Fill it up. Kill him. Prove that you truly are worse than your 
fathers, that you would actually kill the Messiah. And then he says, you are, you brood of vipers. He's saying you're children of this snake. Remember way back in Genesis 3, there's a promise that from a child from the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. Jesus is saying, well, you're children of the snake, of the serpent. In Luke 20, we don't have time to go here, but he gives a parable of a vineyard where a man buys a vineyard and then he hires tenants to run the vineyard and he moves to another country. And after a while, when the fruit of the vineyard should be ripe, the owner of the vineyard sends messengers to go get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And Jesus says, when they get there, the tenants beat them up. Don't give them anything. Other ones they kill. And he keeps sending messengers and they keep killing them or beating them and sending them away. And then the owner of the vineyard says, I'm going to send my only son. They will respect him. But when they see the son, they say, hey, the inheritance is ours if we kill the son. So they kill the son. And then Jesus asked the question, what do you think the owner of that vineyard is going to do to those tenants? And he's showing them, this is a, this is a loving parable of Christ warning them ahead of time, trying to uh, expose the hypocrisy. And yet, their hearts are hard. So the second point in your notes, follow Jesus. He is the Word of God. Ask yourself this question. Are you submissive to the Word of God? Can the Word of God speak anything into your life? Do you see God as good that he's worthy to listen to not only that but do you see his words like gold because the pharisees thought they knew it all so that when christ comes and preaches truth that was contrary to what they thought they had it all figured out they weren't going to listen and i wonder how many christians grow hard and think, I can't learn anything. I can't be humbled. I can't be taught. Can God change your view about anything? Or do you got to figure it out? Do you got a justification for every sin that you want to protect? And so that when the word of God comes, you just kill it. Like they killed the prophets. Keep it away. Keep it away. My charge to you is humbly come before God's Word. Let God's Word speak to you. Humble yourself under it. If any human being really thinks they already know it all, they're a fool. We need the Word of God to be conformed into the image of Christ, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. 
Third point in your notes is follow Jesus. He is the good shepherd. All right, now we got to move. How often, verse 34, would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Norman Geisler, someone who despises the full sovereignty of God over all things. In fact, he says, if you view God that way, you make God a cosmic rapist who rapes the will of man. And one of his favorite texts to go to to prove that although Jesus' will is one thing, that man can trump the will of Christ. This is one of the favorite texts that he goes to to prove his point. At first glance, it seems true. It seems right. And yet, all sorts of verses come to my mind. I, I come to a text like this, I read it, and I think, well, what about Luke ten twenty, where Jesus says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits are subject to you. He sends the 72 out. They come back. They're all excited. They cast, cast out demons and stuff. And it says, don't rejoice about that, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So Jesus says, no one will know the Father unless I choose to reveal the Father to Him. No one. That's God's gracious will that Jesus is rejoicing in. Or in Acts 13.48, after Paul preaches a sermon, he said, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? As many as were appointed to eternal life. Or John 6.43, where Jesus says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. Or Isaiah 46, which speaks of God's total sovereignty over all things. He's comparing himself to the idols of the nations. And he says, here's how you know who God is. He says, remember this. This is Isaiah 46, 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Well, what is God like? Here's what he says. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. He doesn't just declare the things. He declares the doings of the world. And then he says this. I have spoken and I'll bring it. To our, he, I'm sorry, I, I got ahead of myself. My counsel shall stand. I shall accomplish all of my purpose. Calling the bird of prey from the east. He's saying the most insignificant thing in the world is under my sovereign control. And the man of my counsel from a far country, the prophet. 
Everyone would say the prophet's from God, but he's saying even the birds are under his sovereign control. I have spoken, I'll bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I'll do it. Or Ephesians 1.11, in him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So all these texts are in my mind and a hundred more But what does our text mean? I want to take you to Matthew 23. The parallel account to Luke's is in Matthew. And it's at the end of chapter 23. So when Luke's writing his gospel, remember he's putting together uh, the account of Jesus' life for uh, Theophilus so that he may stand firm and believe strongly in Christ. And one of the things Luke does is he's more thematic than Matthew. And what I mean by that is where Matthew takes chronology and puts events in chronological order consistently, Luke sometimes will take some of Jesus' teachings and put them in a grouping of like teaching. So when we ask ourselves, what's the context of this text? It's helpful to look at the parallel passage in Matthew. And if we were going to read, which we don't have time for, Matthew 23, this is the most brutal chapter of Christ's judgment on the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says that five different times. Two times, he says, woe to you, you blind guides. Imagine if you're a teacher and you're called hypocrites and blind guides. He calls them blind fools. He calls them blind men. He calls them blind Pharisees. And then he culminates his argument and Verse 33 says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are, you escape, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, first book of the Bible, to the blood of Zechariah, which is the last book of the Jewish Bible, uh, Old Testament, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he says in that context, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. First question. In the context... Who is Jerusalem? In the context of Matthew 23, this is Christ's final argument against the Jewish leadership in Israel. And then look at what he says. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered you That's not what it says. It says, your children. Well, why does that matter? 
Why does that matter? Norman Geisler says what this text teaches is that Jesus wanted to bring spiritual life to Israel, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, but was unable to do it because they were unwilling. And if that were true, what you would see is you here. But that's not what we see. What Jesus says is, how often I would have gathered your children. Whose children? The leadership of Jerusalem. The Pharisees' children. The prophets' children. The ones who began to speak the words of man instead of the words of God. And Jesus said, I came to gather your children over and over and over again. And what did you do? You said, I did what I did by the power of Satan. You said it was by the power of Beelzebub, I do what I do. And what Jesus is pointing out is, when Israel's Messiah shows up to gather the people like a hen gathers the chicks, the leadership opposes Christ. The people who are supposed to draw the people to God oppose Jesus at every move. And so this is a judgment upon the leadership of Israel. And then he says, see your house is left to you desolate. The word means it's forsaken. It's left as it is. So the one who came with the words of life, the one who came that could impart real life, you oppose at every turn. And so Israel is left to you desolate. As it is, hardened in their heart, not wanting the word of God, not wanting to trust Christ. And it seems like it ends in doom and gloom. But if you noticed, point three is what? Follow Jesus. He is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the good teacher to follow. He is the right one. And he says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's the third question. When is that? This, and there's two different views. One view says this. This is an eternal judgment that when Jesus comes, then all the Jews, the lost Jews, the leadership of Israel will bow knee because the one who rules the world with the rod of iron will cut him down at the knees and that every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So that's one view out there. Uh, I believe that he is pointing hope to Israel, that there will be a day when this hardening on Israel's heart will be lifted and a generation of Jewish people and Jewish leadership will go, aha, our hope is in Christ. 
And to prove that to you would take about 20 more minutes and a lot more verses. So next week, we will look at uh, those verses. We'll look at Romans chapter 11 later uh, in Luke as well. I'll give you one, one more taste in, in Luke 19. Luke 19.41, when Jesus is speaking of the end, He says, And when He drew near, He saw the city and wept over it, saying, Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Their eyes are hidden from the truth. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another. This is pointing to the destruction of the temple because you did not know your time of visitation. And then... Actually, it's verse 21, or chapter 21, verse 20. Uh, and then he goes on to say in chapter 21, he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you'll know the desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out of the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill what is written, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nurse, with nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled foot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So there we get another until, which shows hope yet even for Israel to turn for this hardening to be lifted. And uh, we'll look at that more next week. So my prayer is that you would run, flee to Christ. The only hope of a sinner is Christ. None of us have any claim of goodness when we stand before God's word. God's word is like a double-edged sword. It gets down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do you really want to defend your thoughts and intentions? Do you really want those to go public and try to say, I have hope in and of myself? Hebrews 4 says the word of God leaves us naked before the Lord. But praise be to God who loved the world so much He sent Christ that so whosoever would run to Him would have everlasting life. Father, I pray that as we look at this text that reveals the hardness of heart of Israel, Lord, we ask that You would be gracious to humble us, that we would run to Christ, that we would love His Word, that we would humbly come before His Word. Lord, I pray that uh, all of our hope would be bound up in Christ. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.